we need a 401k plan for happiness. You know, that's what we actually need. I mean, you're not just going to hope that your money takes care of itself. You're going to be broke when you're old if you try to let your, you know, your income take care of itself. And the same thing is true with your happiness. You need to have an understanding of what you should accumulate, what you should invest in, what your relationship should look like. And, and we need to spend more time investing in, in, in the happiness in our lives and not just assuming that everything will take care of itself if we do, if we're pretty lucky early on. You know, when we talk about a good life, a happy life, a successful life, we often paint this portrait of somebody who's dynamic, who's engaged, who's achieving success upon success. And yet we ignore the fact, especially in a time like today when you know, people's lifespans are just lengthening, that there is this whole period you know, to our life that sometimes goes beyond our peak performance days. And I am so delighted that today we have an opportunity to learn from someone who has deeply invested both in his personal journey as well as in the science and studies he's done to help us understand what happens and how can we flourish in what we might call the second chapter, the second half of our life. And I'm referring here to Arthur Brooks. I have had the privilege of having Arthur be a guest on our Intersections podcast in the past as well. And I'm delighted to have him be welcomed back here today. Arthur is the professor of practice of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School and a professor of management practice at the business school at Harvard as well. Before Harvard, he served for 10 years as the president of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., one of the leading think tanks in the world. He's the author of 12 books. And as someone who's just written his first, me, I tell you, hats off, <laughs> 12 books, including the number one New York Times bestseller that we're going to talk about today, From Strength to Strength and other bestsellers as well, like Love Your Enemies and The Conservative Heart. He is the columnist for The Atlantic, host of the podcast himself, How to Build a Happy Life, and a subject of a documentary in 2019, The Pursuit. Fortune magazine has anointed him as one of the world's greatest leaders. He's been awarded a number of honorary doctorates and has given just a whole number of speeches in the US, Europe, and Asia, and beyond as a way to put forth a really heartfelt and beautiful message, some of which you will hear from him today. Thank you, Hitendra. What a delight to be with you. Nice to see you again. Me too. Me too. I feel the same way. How's it been going for you as um, you've taken something which I know has mattered so much to you? You and I have had conversations about this in the past as you were putting the book together, as you've been going on your own personal journey and recrafting the plan and strategy for the second half of your life. How's it been going for you as you've started to have conversations now formally about this with public audiences? It's been really interesting, I have to say. You know, you know perfectly that when you're putting your book together, you, you know it's an interesting topic or you wouldn't be writing about it. The, cre the key question is, is it just interesting to me or is it interesting uh -huh. to a lot of other people as well? And, you know, I've had a number of conversations and I, I practiced with, the, with the, the argument of the book a little bit in the pages of The Atlantic. So I knew that there was an audience for it, but I wasn't quite ready for how intense the interest was in this mm. particular topic. I mean, the truth of the matter is that as a specialist in happiness, I mean, I teach the brain science and social science of happiness at Harvard, that, that there's a lot of interest in that for people in the first half of their life, but there's very little about happiness and the strategies for happiness right. in the second half. The, the whole idea that most people have is that, look, 
live right, play by the rules, win, succeed, uh, bank it, die happy. That's kind of the, the whole idea. It's, it's wrong. It's just simply wrong. The idea that you can let happiness take care of itself, that if you do a bunch of things right in the first half, that the second half will, will be just fine. And, and, and looking at the science on this and looking at the practice and biography and history and, and, and the deep spiritual teachings on this, it's quite eye-opening for a lot of people. And so the interest has been, has been pretty high. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I noticed that you do so well in this book, and uh, folks, uh, again, just as a reminder, we're talking about From Strength to Strength, Arthur's new contribution to the advancement of the pursuit of happiness in life. One of the things that see you do really well is to highlight how this has to be a very planful journey. It's not something that uh, just automatically comes. And perhaps if you had a lot of success in the first half, doesn't mean that you're entitled to a lot of success redefined, perhaps, in your second half. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, the, one of the, one of the ways I, I sort of figured this out, I mean, for a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago now, when I was starting, first starting to travel to India a lot, and I was talking to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, he said, one of the things that you need, to, you need to understand as a Westerner, he told me, it was quite interesting, he said that, that you've really done well in the West at investing in all your time and energy and resources in developing business practices and technology. We have 6,000 years of history investing in spiritual practices. Now, the reason that that had a big impact on me was, number one, it was a profound insight and, and, and one I greatly appreciated. But the second point was this you can invest in whatever you want and you will get a return on it. Now, uh -huh. this is the key thing when it comes to our happiness and spiritual development and the development of our love relationships. Look, you could, what we need, and let me put it in more sort of base and trivial terms, we need a, a 401k plan for happiness. You know, that's what we actually need. I mean, you're not just going to hope that your money takes care of itself. You're going to be broke when you're old if you try to let your, you know, your income take care of itself. And the same thing is true with your happiness. You need to have an understanding of what you should accumulate, what you should invest in, what your relationship should look like. And, and we need to spend more time investing in, in the happiness in our lives and not just assuming that everything will take care of itself if we do, if we're pretty lucky early on. There was this um, story that really um, jumped out at me. Uh, it was profound and dramatic and so much um, epitomizing what you just said. You know, what happens when you don't really develop the 401k plan, which is a beautiful way to put put it uh, for, for happiness, that you shared in your uh, column in the in an article, right? In an article in the Atlantic Monthly about um, what was it? Your professional decline is coming earlier than you think. And there's a story about a moment that happens with you in an airplane. Would you, would you be open to sharing that with everybody? Yeah, you know, this is actually, I used that same story to open the book which is that I overheard a conversation. Now, this is, it happened at, this was about eight years ago. And I was just about to celebrate my 50th birthday at the time. And I was, I was going through kind of a dark night of the soul insofar as, you know, things were going really well in my career as a CEO of a big nonprofit organization. I had to raise a lot of money and travel around, give speeches. And I felt like kind of a big shot, but I realized that I didn't have any retirement plan for my own happiness at all. I mean, I was just going to kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again until I stopped. And then what? And at this time, you know, I was on a on an airplane all the time, like so many people are. And I overheard a conversation behind me on the plane of an old elderly couple. I couldn't see him because it was dark. Um, it was a night flight, but I could hear him. I could tell it was a man and a woman, and I could tell they were by their voices that they were elderly. And the man was explaining to who I'm, I assumed was his wife that he might as well be dead. 
and you know, his wife was trying to reassure him, oh, it's not true. And then he would say, nobody, nobody cares about me. Nobody remembers me. And she'd say, it's not true. It was clearly true. <laughs> and, and I was thinking to myself, this must be somebody who's disappointed with his life because he didn't do very much. You know, he wasn't Hitendra Wadwar, you know, a big, a, you know, big shot entrepreneur and college professor. This is a guy who didn't get the, the education that he wanted, didn't start the companies that he wanted. And, and so now he's, he's near the end and he's disappointed. Well, the lights go on at the end of the flight. We all turn around and it's one of the most famous men in the world. It turns out that this is somebody who's done 10 times as much of his life as I ever will. He's rich. He's famous. He's not controversial. He's beloved and respected for his heroics. He's a true world hero for things he did in the 60s and 70s. And I just heard him telling his wife that he might as well be dead and everybody's forgotten him. And this is the point. Look, how many famous people do really well as athletes or entertainers early on and then die broke? That's this guy is basically what's happened, except it's not with his money. It's with his happiness. And I thought to myself, mm, you know, look, if, if this guy doesn't have it made in the shade, what chance do I have leaving it up? You know, and, and it came at a perfect time. You know, I'm turning 50. I was, you know, things were going well, but they, I didn't have an exit strategy. And I thought to myself, what am I doing here? You know, I'm a social scientist. You know, I have a PhD as a social scientist. I might as well put it to some good use and create a strategic plan for my own happiness. And that's what happened. I, I, it was me search, not research. And I didn't intend to publish it, but my wife found a bunch of my notes planning out the second half of the last half of the last quarter, whatever it is, however many years God gives me of my life. And she said, I think you should publish this. Maybe somebody will be interested in it. And that's how it came to be a book. Oh, wow. Powerful. That's beautiful. Me search. What a <laughs> wonderful uh, quest for any or all of us to take. It speaks to you that Dalai Lama, His Holiness, has uh, comment to you. 6,000 years of me search, right? That's yeah. the... That, yeah. That's what they've done in the East. <laughs> yeah, we're putting together stock markets and they're doing, you know, looking into the structure of the human soul. So, you know, yeah, 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 pick, yeah. I guess. Yeah, beautiful. Sometimes I give this metaphor to my, my students. I say like, let's say that you're wanting to go on vacation. You have a couple of packages to pick from. One of them is this travel agent who comes to you. Hey, you know, I've got this amazing Disney park that you can go to. And uh, you'll be like having an amazing day there. You know, it'll start this way and then you'll have these rides they can go after and you'll have the sumptuous lunch and then this and, and then say, okay, and what about the rest of the day? Oh, like, you know, we shouldn't talk about it. Let, let's ignore that, you know, the, the second half of the day. Uh, it's like, no, 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 I, I want to hear about it. No, 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 it's okay. You know, the first half will be great. You know, you'll have this, you'll have this, you'll have this. Don't you want to go on that journey? They're like, no, but, but tell me a little bit about what happens. Oh, you know, uh, yeah, you'll, you'll be super tired. You you might have a rough ride. You you may not get much to eat. Maybe your loved ones will leave you. Who knows? I mean, there, there are some parts there that I don't want to... Would you ever want to take that day? And then, that day, you know, but that's life. Like, that's the way we're treating life is just right. um, by planning and ex getting so excited about a couple of chapters of it. But then there's this final chapter that we somehow just... Uh, you know, so anyway, so kudos to you for having done this research. What is it that um, in doing this work, in the me search for yourself, as well as ultimately then the codifying and writing in this book that most um, perhaps surprised you in a kind of like a positive way as to, you know, while, while it is kind of like a stage of life where we are in some ways having to go past our peak and, you know, kind of give up on a lot of things, but actually it surprised you and, you know, in a pleasant way. Yeah. Well, actually what surprised me the most pleasantly came out of what surprised me the most negatively, which is often the case. And so when I was doing the research, what I first found was that you know, the first question that I asked is, 
generally speaking, left up to chance, do people get happier or unhappier as they get older? Right. And what you find is that most people get slightly unhappier all you know through their you know from their early twenties until their early fifties, and then they most people start getting happier in their early fifties until they're about seventy. And then the population breaks up into two groups, two equal sized right. groups. And one group keeps getting happier and the other group starts back down. Oh. Now, here's the thing that really surprised me. I thought, I would have thought that the group that keeps getting happier after age 70 in the last quarter of their life, that these are the people who did the best in life before. Right. The high achievers, the strivers. But it turns out there's a striver's curse. There's research that shows that the people who are most likely to be disappointed with their lives are the people who are identified as the highest performers early on. And the reason is because you can't live up to your own expectations, Satendra. And, you know, if you're if you self-objectify and become a success addict, a workaholic early, you'll never live up to your number one expectations. Number one. And number two is that you have a big party early on. And the one thing everybody knows is when the party's over <laughs> and the higher you go up, look, if you never do anything with your life, you won't know when it's over. But if yeah. you go really, really, really high, sooner or later, you're going to have to come back down. It's going to hurt when you do. And that's the reason that I write about the striver's curse. And that's the bad news. The good news is right. you're, nobody has to have it that there are a certain set of skills now, you got to go against Mother Nature, and this is something that any religious person who's listening to us now or any spiritual person listening to us right now knows is very normal. That idea that if it feels good, do it, go with Mother Nature is terrible advice, and the reason is because Mother Nature wants you to just pass on your genes. You must do much more than that and sometimes even fight against your tendencies for you to actually have a happy and a good life. You know, the, the hardest thing to do naturally is to sit in meditation, for example. That's like that's completely contrary to human nature. And yet when we master it, we transcend human nature and actually can become better than we would naturally be. We get beyond the animal essence of who we are to become truly human. And even, I mean, this is the whole idea of finding Atman so we can be one with Brahman. And so we can become more divine, uh, less animal in every way. And so here's the, that's the point. What I found over the course of the book, and this is the most surprising thing, is that number one big surprise is that the highest strivers, contrary to what the olds tells you, are most likely to have a bad surprise, but that surprise is not inevitable with the right skills. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Sobering thought. Sobering thought for so many of people in our milieu, right, who um, see ambition, drive, success as their logic for kind of how to live. And feel it as a place of security, you know, that will last for them forever. Right. And, and what you're saying is actually, the more you have that ambition, the more you have to drive, the more you taste success, the more risk you run, unless you put some self-correcting mechanisms in place. One of the mechanisms which um, I was so thrilled to see you really kind of like reflect on and enrich our understanding of is a sense of non-attachment mm. uh, as, a, as a key part of like what we need to cultivate. Can, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that we are naturally, when left up to our animal desires, there are four. And this comes from the work of St. Thomas Aquinas, the, you know, the 13th century Catholic saint. But really, it comes from Aristotle. And Aristotle was saying the same thing as the Buddha. They were contemporaries of each other, the Buddha and, and Aristotle. And they were talking about much the same thing, that left up to our devices, we have idols. And those idols have divine characteristics, but they're not divine. Those four idols are money, power, pleasure, and honor. And by honor, he doesn't mean in the contemporary sense of serving with honor. It means fame 
or admiration or prestige. So money, power, pleasure, and prestige. These right. are the divine-like characteristics that seem sort of godlike but aren't. And Aquinas said that left to our devices, if we don't search for God, that we will look for those things. Now, the problem is they don't satisfy, which led the Buddha at the same time, more or less as Aristotle, to say that life is suffering. The first noble truth of Buddhism, it's actually dukkha, which in Sanskrit means, more means dissatisfaction. Life is dissatisfaction. It's sticky cravings of inadequate things. So Aquinas taking from Aristotle, who is saying the same thing as the Buddha, we're saying that left to our devices, we will be attached to things that cannot satisfy us. This is the first giveaway that we must not be in a state of nature that nature is beautiful and nature is good, but we must transcend nature with our, our divine powers because we have this unique ability to actually connect with these divine characteristics that can lift us above our base nature. That's why you know the Buddha talks about the eightfold path of getting beyond attachment, which leads to dissatisfaction, and why St. Thomas Aquinas later echoing Aristotle, says that we need to turn around for money, power, pleasure, and honor, start walking toward God, walking away from those things to not... Now, again, neither the Buddha nor Aristotle nor St. Thomas Aquinas, or for that matter, St. Paul the Apostle, who said the love of money is the root of all evil. He didn't say that money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is the root of all evil. There's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with money or power right. necessarily, or pleasure or prestige. It's attachment to those things. Mm -hmm. So we, we should be able to live in a world with those things, to use them as a force for good, to lift up other people while not becoming attached to those things ourselves. That's the trick. You know, that's the, that's the, you know, what, what the Buddha was trying to get people to do on his eightfold path and what Christianity and Hinduism have been trying to get people to do for thousands of years. And it's not easy. But it turns out that if we follow one of these paths through these attachments, that life is so rich and we will have lifted ourselves up from the base nature. And in so doing, we can have this last half that's infinitely better, more satisfying, more pleasurable, more meaningful than anything we could have found in the first half. I'm remembering now a really powerful personal journey that you shared about how, yes, you had that aha moment come to you when you heard that conversation between uh, these two individuals in the airplane. Right. But even much prior to that, you actually experienced a bit of professional decline, you know, mm. as a musician. And there were some, you know, of these early lessons that you were learning even, even in that journey. Could, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, I started off like, you know, most kids. I mean, we all have the things that we're interested in and we're good at. And my real passion as a child was music. Um, all, all I wanted to be was a great classical musician. I was a French horn player. Um, I had been playing violin and piano since I was four years old. And at eight or nine, I stuck up the French horn. I was good at it. And, and I decided I had this, I resolved, this is a very American thing. I resolved to be the greatest, the world's greatest French horn player. And, and I, I studied for hours a day. I went to the best teachers. Um, I went to a conservatory when I was 18 years old, which is what you do. And I, I promptly dropped out of my required classes and was um, invited to pursue my excellence outside the conservatory. Actually, I dropped my required music theory classes to take tabla lessons, which is North Indian, you know, Hindustani classical drumming. And it was in, incredibly useful and very satisfying. But it turns out it did not fulfill my academic requirements. And one must do that, too. So I went on the road 
uh, as a professional musician. Um, I went I went professional at age 19, and I did that all the way through my 20s uh, without having gone to college. But I found that instead of getting better and better and better, I was getting worse and worse and worse. And and it was weird. I mean, it's it's what a lot of athletes find and and musicians do as well. I couldn't figure out what was going wrong if I was. If I was, um, you know, going to, I needed to go to better teachers, I needed to practice more, whatever it was, but nothing seemed to work. And so I, I had to come to terms with the fact that it, my, this dream, you know, whether it was a quixotic dream or a ridiculous dream, it was whatever, it was my dream that it wasn't going to come true, that I wasn't going to get better. I wasn't going to progress in my career. And so, you know, dejectedly and embarrassedly, I went back to college. I didn't tell anybody about it. I studied by correspondence. I got a, a degree in economics without telling anybody except my wife because I was ashamed of the fact that I was running away from my music career. And then finally I left music and started my PhD. And, and you know, for years I didn't tell anybody about this because it was the great heartbreak of my life was this until I realized I love being an economist. I love being a social scientist. Mm -hmm. It's the most amazing thing. And, and really what it came down to was this. Here's how I finally made peace with it. I was, my favorite composer is Johann Sebastian Bach, the world's greatest composer of the high Baroque, maybe the greatest composer who's ever lived. And he was asked near the end of his life why he wrote music. And he said that the aim and final end of all music is nothing less than the glorification of God and the refreshment of the soul. And I said to myself, I couldn't have said that when I was a French horn player, but I can say that now. Hmm. Today, I'm talking to Hitendra Wadwa, on yeah. our podcast. And I feel like I'm talking about things that can glorify God, that can refresh the soul. And so finally I can make Bach proud. <laughs> I couldn't uh -huh. have a French horn yeah, player, yeah. but maybe I can as a social scientist. <laughs> beautiful. That's beautiful. Uh, you know, it's a lens, uh, this notion of glorifying God. And uh, what was the second part of the phrase? Uh, refreshing the soul. Refreshing, refreshing the soul. You know, I've come to the point of believing that that's the intention that every great creator has in whichever pursuits, you know, that they're pursuing, whether it's in the arts or science or whatever there's, you know, like Einstein, you take Einstein. I mean, he, he was saying like, for me, it's all about trying to tune into the thoughts of God. You know, like for me, the laws of physics are like, they've been put out there by some creative energy or creative force, if I can tune into that. So there's this mystical transcendental kind of connection they have with their discipline as a truth seeking and potential optimizing kind of quest, right? Whatever the discipline might be. Beautiful. Yeah, no, that's right. I think that's right. And you know, one of the big mistakes that a lot of people make in modern life today is to to separate out the creation from the creator artificially, to 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 find some sort of exclusivity between faith and reason, or really iron sharpens iron in very important ways. And that to to understand the nature of the divine, and and in ourselves having our own human genius be a simulacrum for that divine nature. I mean, what a beautiful thing that it is. And, and I see a real impoverishment in the way that a lot of people, particularly in the way that a lot of the people in the West, that they talk about science and technology and, you know, all of these things as if they were a substitute for our yeah. spirituality. And, and mm -hmm. on the contrary, they're a complement to it. They, and the spirituality is a basis for what we actually can do with our human genius, in my view. So, you teach at Harvard, both yeah. in the Kennedy School and the Business School. And here you are talking about these kinds of ideas that border on religion, that actively evoke spirituality, that bring in the G word like God. What have you found to be, uh, you know, a path towards a more universal kind of embrace 
that you can get in those kinds of classroom environments versus what might be like more of your personal quest, your personal journey? You know, where is it that you found it helpful to, let's say, you know, kind of partition or draw the line or limit or, you know, kind of speak in, in a way that uh, today, because at some level, I, I see what you're talking about as a universal hunger. And it's there in everybody, whether they recognize it or they codify it in a faith-based way or not, whether they think about a relationship with the higher entity or higher being or not. It doesn't matter. You know, there is that hunger for something deeply connected with spirit. Um, yeah. but, but from your experiments and your journey in doing this work now over the last several years, what lessons or ideas can you maybe impart for those of us out there amongst our listeners who are drawn to wanting to also bring some of this into their conversations in the, in the workplace and beyond? Like, what is a constructive way of, of doing this? The most important thing to keep in mind is that we need to be natural. I mean, one of the things that, that, that religious or spiritual people that they tend to be bad at sort of naturalness. And so, because they're self-conscious about it. It's, you know, if it is part of you, if it's as a part of you as the nose on your face, which for me is, you know, pretty huge. I mean, you don't hide it and don't, don't call attention to it unnecessarily or unnaturally either. Make your spiritual journey as natural as putting on your shirt. Make it part of just what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really important thing. And so one of the things that I've, I've um, dedicated myself to doing, for example, is I give about 175 speeches a year outside of my lecturing. And I make sure that nobody will leave any speech of mine not knowing my spiritual views. That's mm-hmm. really important because, and I'll just say it naturally and casually and, and, and in an undramatic way. You know, I'll talk about, for example, the habits of the happiest people. There are really four. There are four things that the happiest people practice every day. Accounts that they put an investment into every day. If you want to talk about happiness, 401k. That's their faith, their family, their friendships, and work that is meaningful insofar as that they can earn their success and serve other people. Those Mm -hmm. are the four accounts. Faith, family, friends, and work. And I'll say, look, when it comes to faith, you have to figure out what that is. You know, but... But don't skip a transcendental journey. My journey is I'm a Roman Catholic. It is literally the most important thing in my life. Mm-hmm. But I know as a social scientist that the benefit comes from getting away, from zooming out from yourself to see the majesty of the human experience from the point of view of something bigger than you. If you're an atheist, maybe you're studying the Stoic philosophers. Maybe you're studying secular humanism. If you're spiritual but not religious, maybe you're starting a meditation practice or walking in nature or, or analyzing the works of Johann Sebastian Bach. Or if you're like Hetendra and Arthur, maybe you're, and you're, you're an adherent to the work of Pramahansa Yogananda and I of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The point is do something. Right. Do something. Because you, your heart wants it and you need it. And the data say that the happiest people have a transcendental walk in their lives. And that's how I present the material. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, very, very practical and valuable instruction of how to build a bridge between our worlds and the worlds of our audiences. You have, um, in the same light, also enriched the reader in your book with stories, not just from you know the power of your own personal journey and from some of these iconic, recognized, embraced um, you know figures like uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, but you also got stories of uh, people from the scriptures, you know, from spiritual life, from the lives of saints and, and beyond. And I was really inspired by the story of Nicodemus that you have there and the powerful lesson there is in his story for all of us. Kudos for how, Arthur, you take some of these stories and allow us to see lessons in those stories for our own self. 
Hmm. So, you know, I, I think it'd be great if you could uh, illustrate what hmm. is it that we learned from Nicodemus? Who was he and what significance does he have for us today? Hmm. Nicodemus is a, is a major figure in the Christian Gospels. He's a Pharisee. And as most people who know anything about Christianity and, and New Testament Christian Bible know that the Pharisees were kind of the bad guys. They were the, the, the very strict Jewish believers that were always sort of tormenting Jesus and his followers. But it, there's a lot more to it than that. And part of the reason is, is basically this, and this is a little bit of background that probably most of the listeners don't know. The Pharisees were a highly mystical sect of, of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews. Mm -hmm. uh, they had actually taken on mystical characteristics of the Zoroastrians during the Babylonian exile in, after the Persians had taken over and, and allowed the Jews to practice freely their religion in Babylon. The, right. the, the Persians, who many of whom practiced Zoroastrianism, a lot of those characteristics were taken on by this sect of Pharisaical Jews. And that meant the, the resurrection of the dead and saints in heaven and the afterlife and all these things. And they brought mm -hmm. those very mystical views back to Palestine, to, to, to Israel, and taught these things. Now, Jesus and his followers came out of the Pharisaical tradition. The mm -hmm. reason that these are the big players in this is because this really was their community. And, and then the Christians who took it on after the death of Jesus Christ, they were the ones who continued to, to you know, maintain these Pharisaical views. So really, the Pharisees today came from the Zoroastrians through you know, the, the time of Jesus, a certain sect of Jews during the time of Jesus, and now today are still encapsulated in modern-day Christians. It's a very interesting thing. Now, another point that's really interesting that you know really well, but maybe many, many of our listeners don't, is that the Zoroastrians were kicked out of Persia right. a few centuries later and went to Gujarat on the east coast of India and are today called the Parsis. Yeah. And and, and very mystical sect, a very interesting and, and very beautiful, beautiful spiritual tradition. This is how much we all have in common. Between hmm. India and Persia and ancient Palestine and, and modern Europe and North America. I mean, we all have these mystical views that really tie us together. Now, Nicodemus was a, was a, was a holy man, yeah. was a big shot among the Pharisees and was listening to Jesus. And he just can't get it out of his head. He just, and, and you know, he, he knows what he's supposed to do, which is to say, we got to get rid of this guy. This guy is, is telling us that we're bad news. And, you know, he's standing up to us in a way that's impermissible because we are the leaders and we should be respected, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he keeps, he winds up going to Jesus at night. This is the story of Nicodemus at night. He finds right. Jesus at night. He just, he just got to listen to him. He just says, Lord, tell me more. Mm -hmm. and, and all throughout, you see this, this little by little by little conversion. And then at the very end of the New Testament, when Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus is one of the people who cares for Jesus's body, which suggests that now Nicodemus has actually become a follower of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? But it's all of this intermingling of these incredible spiritual cosmic traditions, these mystical traditions that have taken, that are taken on all over the place and our, our ability to persuade each other and to love each other in all these really interesting ways is, right. um, is really encapsulated nicely. And I think that story of, of, of old Nicodemus. Yeah. And, um, you know, there is power for us to learn about the capacity for human transformation and yeah. what Nicodemus went through. Uh, and there is power as well, metaphorically, in that whole discovery and investigation that he opened himself up to at night, right? As opposed to in the 
uh, light of day and everybody was able to see him. So what is that lesson that you're helping us draw about him, you know, him doing it kind of in the quiet, like, you know, in the, in the night, you know, peace? Well, it's that all of us need to be open to transformation. All of us need to be open to change and we can do it during the day or we can sneak off and do it at night. Yeah. <laughs> and most of us actually have so much pride that we're afraid of people seeing our transformation. This is really the point. We're, we're ordinarily kind of Nicodemus at night. There's a lot of literature on this, a lot of social science literature that shows, for example, that, that most people, they start to become more religious after about age 40, which is weird, Hitendra, because nobody believes in the Easter bunny or the tooth fairy after 40, but we're more likely to believe in things that we can't see, mystical things that we can't see after 40. And part of the reason is because life is messy. And we, we're, we're more likely to become more comfortable with the messiness of life, including the, the inherent contradictions and in our imperfect beliefs that are captivated by our imperfect brains after age 40. But one way or the other, most people get more spiritual after 40, but they're prideful and they've made commitments against their spiritual, against the religion of their youth and of these, these crazy, crazy religious faith paradigms and all the bad stuff. And so they have to be like Nicodemus at night. They got to sneak off. And so I've met so many people that say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to church, but I'm not telling anybody. Yeah, man, you're Nicodemus at night. And I'm sure it's the same thing in India when people are coming back to the, their Hindu faith or their Muslim faith uh, that, that they're, they're not telling anybody about it because they're good. They're big intellectuals. You know, no, 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 no. My beliefs rule out all that stuff. But secretly they're starting to pray and sit in meditation again, et cetera. I'm reminded a little bit of, uh, you know, there's the Elvis movie that is playing, you know, right now. And, uh, you know, he himself had a very powerful secret hunger from within, which hasn't really been popularized in mass American consciousness, which was very much about this, about his deep hunger for spiritual enlightenment and growth and a connection with something much vaster than himself and his uh, remarkable popularity in the world. Yeah, that's true. Well, it's interesting that a little bit telling. All of Elvis Presley's Grammys were in the in the category of gospel music, ah, actually, yeah. and not in rock and roll, but in gospel. Yeah, you know, that's really, and the reason is because that's where his heart was. At the yeah. end of the day, look, I mean, we're all tempted, and we're all fallen, and we're all a big mess. Yeah, but what we really, really want is that is that truth. We're drawn. It's what Aquinas was talking about. He says that we're drawn toward the Godhead, Brahman, for yeah. for, for Hindus. You know, the Godhead, but but it's so hard. It's so hard. And so we turn around and start walking backward toward the money, power, pleasure, and fame. But we're drawn and drawn toward it. And, and this is the interesting thing. I mean, I, look, I, I realize that not everybody sees it like I do. But we all do want something that is more transcendental. And that's the hunger that I think it's important for all of us to, to respect in ourselves and to feed. Yeah, yeah. You reminded me of this uh, documentary I saw recently on Aretha Franklin as well. And same thing. You know, I mean, she... Um, she is so popular at a mass uh, level for her, her music, but her heart was really into gospel. And uh, boy, what, what, a, what a beautiful yeah. uh, expression of a devotion it is when you hear her sing, sing, sing some of the gospel songs. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's yeah, interesting, yeah. you know, one of the things that will really, really move your heart, you know, when I, when I think about, they're, they're, they're very, I, I'm not a very super sentimental guy, but there are yeah. three topics that are hard for me to talk about, which is music, my children, and my faith in God. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not hard for me to talk about. It. It's just hard for me to remain 
scientific in this way because I'm, I'm, I'm immediately, you know, transported. I'm immediately taken to a, a, a tender space when I talk about these, mm. these particular things, because this is, I don't know if it's my weak point or my strong point. What, what, I mean, how do you feel about this? Do you, how do you relate to that? Yeah, no, that's beautifully put, beautifully put. I was uh, just the other day uh, listing out all the very special M's in my life. And, you know, one of the first ones was mathematics and the relationship that you have with music, I have with mathematics. Uh, and the second was my one child, Minanani. Uh, and the third was Mukunda. Mukunda is Yogananda's, um, you know, family name. Uh, Yogananda, yeah. as you know, is my spiritual guide and teacher. And so, yeah, mathematics, Minanani, Mukunda, like three very, very important forces in my life. And to your point, you know, one wells up, right? Wells up, it's something from within. In those yeah, no, that's, that's, Mukunda. Mukunda. that's right. Mukunda is a name. It's a diminutive name in Bengali, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One of the one of the things, Arthur, in your um, journey, in your work, in your speeches and writing, which has thrilled me is your not just comfort, but actually your passion for wanting to integrate, you know, and give us a view into truth by bringing in multiple cultures, multiple points of inspiration, even multiple faiths, you know, all leading to the same end, that quest for you know, that uh, discovery, self-discovery and self-realization, right? And so um, in, in the book, you actually draw upon your travels and conversations and learnings in India. Uh, and you talk about the, um, you know, the four ashramas, for example, and particularly zoom in on, on one prasta, right? Quite a mouthful for those of our listeners who are not um, as exposed to these. But um, I mean, that was incredible what you did there. Uh, could you talk a little bit about kind of what, what lesson or learning you get from that construct in Hindu thought? Yeah, I mean, to begin with, my view is that there are a lot of great ideas out there. There are a lot of compelling ideas, there are a lot of clever ideas. But if I read, for example, an academic journal article in psychology that introduces me to a new idea that I'd never heard before, I say, oh, that's very interesting. Let's see if it stands up. And the way I'm going to see if it stands up is to see if it's replicated on different populations using different yeah. data sets. And even better, if different disciplines start looking at it in different ways. Hmm. Well, the same thing is true for spiritual truths, for spiritual regu empirical regularities in the world. I'm, I'm interested in, you know, my own tradition for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, I believe in my faith and I love my faith and I embrace my faith. But I really want to see many of these ideas from other angles as well, from the vantage of a social scientist, statistician, from other religions, from other philosophical points of view, from the points right. of view of people who have no faith, for example, and from the point of view of biography and the, and, the, and the experience of other people. And so what I try to do as a scholar in, in, in my writing is to look at everything from at least four angles. And, you know, sometimes it'll be through music and social science and faith and philosophy. You know, sometimes I'll be bringing in biography. Sometimes I'll be bringing in mathematical modeling. But just whatever is, I want at least four-dimensional reinforcement of an idea before I get behind the idea, before I, before I, I accept that idea. Right. Now, one of the things that I'm talking about in this book is that the first half of life is fundamentally very different than the second half of life. And so I was looking to, to see whether or not I, I really believe this hypothesis. Support for this hypothesis took me to India in an, in, in an ancient Hindu teaching called the ashramas. Now, the ashramas is a, is a teaching that life comes in four parts. 
four chronological parts. One follows on the other. They're not necessarily all the same length of time, although the model, just as sort of a rule of thumb, think of it as every 25 years and a perfectly balanced life, you live to 100. The first quarter is called brahmacharya, and that's the student. You're learning. You're a sponge. You're, you're becoming a full adult human. The second is called grihasta, which means the householder. That's money, that's family life, that's sexual life to create children. That is, you know, all the stuff, all the sort of the delights of the world. But that's not the end. That's only the, the halfway mark, Tundra. <laughs> right. Then things start getting interesting because then, then you get your second adolescence. Your second adolescence is the transition to vanaprastha. That comes from two Sanskrit words, van and prastha, meaning retiring into the forest. Now, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean literally retiring into the forest. Um, what it means is metaphorically stepping back from Grihasta. That's super hard to do. Most people want to stay in the householder part, money and working and family life and my kids and my stuff and my relationships and my possessions forever. They get stuck in there, but you have to start moving back from that. Vranaprastha is stepping back to more cosmic, more transcendental realities in your life. And that's age 50, by the way, <laughs> according to the theory of the ashramas. Most people don't do it. Now, why do you want to do that? Number one is intensely interesting and satisfying, an unbelievable adventure. It doesn't mean you stop working necessarily. Of course, most of us have to keep working. You need to, uh, the, the whole point is you need to start concentrating more on more supernatural, more metaphysical verities in addition right. to the things that you're doing, such that the last quarter is called sannyasa. And that's enlightenment. In the ancient times, men, men of means in India would, right. would leave their families, their wives and children, and go sit at the foot of their master in a Himalayan cave and yeah. you know, become a monk, basically, for the rest of their lives. Now, I don't recommend that at all. But my point is, if you are going to be you know, bathed in the cosmic light in the end of your life, enlightenment, you got to train for it. That's like the Olympics, man. And so to train for that, you actually need to be reading. You need a basis of moral living, a contemplative practice, a practice of, of learning more about wisdom. And, you know, that's what this third quarter that I'm in really is all about. Oh, yeah, beautiful. We're coming to an end of time, you know, with, with our time. Uh, I would have wanted to hear even more from you on that because there's a beautiful story you share about some of your own explorations around where you're meant to head, with regard to this metaphor, this ideal of renouncing the world and going after like the deeper spiritual quest in the final chapter and the role that your wife has to play in it. You know, is it a moment where you say goodbye or is something different in the modern age? And that beautiful conversation you had with um, a wise one in India about that. But um, do you want to share that, Arthur, or should we leave that for our readers to actually discover in the book? It's such a beautiful story. Well, it is, it is, it is a very, you know, there is in Hindu teaching about, you know, you do it by yourself or you can take your wife. And, and obviously that's the, the option I'm going to take. And I'll just say kind of how that played out in, in my own life. I, I've been married for 30 years. I will, you know, my, the love of my life is the person on whom I will uh, be gazing as I take my dying breath, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, as we were both entering into Vanaprastha together, our, our Christian Vanaprastha together, we talked about it. We prayed about it. We went away on retreat and we, you know, separate silent retreats together. And afterward, my wife said something that was the most beautiful and the most heartbreaking thing that she's ever said to me. She says, finally, you're not the most important thing in my life, <laughs> which is exactly what I needed to hear. Uh. That finally, finally, the divine 
has taken yeah. the centrality in my life, which is ultimately, it was heartbreaking. And it was the most beautiful, most wow. fulfilling moment that we ever had in our marriage. In closing, I wanted to celebrate a very powerful selection of three thoughts that have been expressed in seven simple words as almost like a philosophy for this yeah. you know, second half of our life. And kudos to you for coming up with that, uh, Arthur. Would you mind sharing what those seven words are and you know, what the significance is of each of those three thoughts? This is the, you know, the, the short version of what we've been talking about here today. But that, you know, that it starts actually with the world's formula the world's mistaken formula for happiness. The world tells you that to be happy, you need to do three things. You need to love things, you need to use people, and you need to worship yourself. In other words, you're the center of everything. You're the divine. You need to use people. You step over them and use them for your gratification and for your advancement. And you need to love things, love the things of the world. That's the secret of happiness, but it's completely wrong. That's the secret to misery, abject misery. Now, the truth is that the right formula is very similar. It's similar enough that it's easy to make the mistake. You need to transform, basically transform the nouns and the verbs. The right formula is to use things. There's nothing wrong with the abundance of the world. It's so wonderful, the abundance of the world. Use it. Don't love it because love is guaranteed only for people, love people, use things, love people and worship the divine. I mean, if we can, and you, there's a lot to figure out in that, you know, how do we love people? How do we worship the divine? What is the divine? How do we use things without loving them? Well, that's the adventure of life, Hitendra. That is the journey that we're on. We get to figure out how to do those things. The why is because love and happiness can be and should be our destiny. They can be and should be. That's the why. The what, use things, love people, worship the divine. The how, that's what we got to go figure out. Yeah, yeah. Incredible, beautiful. Yeah, what a world of truth and just uh, those, those seven words. And I love the way you started with the wrong way to think about it. And then just with a play of words, with a few, few words, you know, changed here and there, you come to such profound insight. And I want to I want to end from my side with this quote from, from Arthur. We won't have a chance to get into this part of your uh, conversation with us today uh, in the book, but, uh, but just let this be then a spark for our readers and our listeners to actually perhaps, you know, pick up your book and actually dive even deeper into this conversation. You, you talk about how in that kind of, you know, second half of your life, instead of denying change in your abilities, you know, as, as we do face certain kinds of professional declines, you can make the change itself a source of strength. Instead of trying to avoid decline, you can transcend it by finding a new kind of success better than what the world promises and not a source of neurosis and addiction, but a deeper form of happiness than what you've had before. And in that process, the meaning and true meaning in life may be you see that for the first time. Very profound, very powerful. Thank you so much, Arthur. What's your big kind of motivation to do next? Once you've, um, you know, I think very deservedly so, starting to declare victory on um, clarifying both for yourself and for the world, the script for that second half of life. What is, uh, what is it that you're most invested in and drawn to at this stage? One of the great things about being at a place like the Harvard Business School or you at the Columbia School of Business is that we recognize that 
that trouble is actually opportunity. That's how the entrepreneur thinks. And we have a lot of trouble in the world today. We have a lot of bitterness and we have a, a real crisis of unhappiness in the world today. What I'm most looking forward to and what I'm dedicating myself to doing for the next decade is using the science of happiness to fight the problem of you know, worldwide declining happiness and seeing it as an opportunity to bring us together and lift us up as a people. I'm dedicating my ideas to love and happiness, to lift people up and bring them together using science and using spirituality in tandem with each other. That's, that's, my, that's my big adventure. And I'm, just, I'm excited every morning when I wake up. It is very evident, Arthur, that you are excited, that you are invested in this beautiful cause. Thank you for making time for our listeners today. And I'm so grateful that uh, you and I have had a chance to have this conversation and for all the beautiful work you do, for all the beautiful work you do. And thank you for that very special conversation about you and Esther as well, your wife. That was, that was so beautiful. Thank you, Hitendra. Thank you for what you're doing. You're lifting people up every single day, including me. Yeah, yeah. Very grateful. Thanks.